0: Those of you joining us online, we know uh, we, I got an email a minute ago that there's a, an issue with the server side of things. It's not our side of things. And so we're working on it. Um, if, you've, if you've stuck with us, uh, it's it's still there. Uh, we just we can't control their end of it. I got an email. It came through on my, my phone. And uh, I was like, oh, well, let's go look at that. I did what I could in the time that I had. Um. So glad that you're here this morning, whether you're in person or, or uh, online. It's a beautiful, beautiful morning. Um, I'm going to address that here in a second. But if you do not have one of these, um, if you do not have one of these Luke journals, I will continually say John, I apologize in advance, but it is a Luke journal. It's not a John journal. Um, John journal just flows so much easier than Luke journal, right? So anyway, if you don't have one of these yet, we have plenty and when we run out, we'll order more because we're going to be in this book for a long time. So I don't think, well, I missed a couple weeks, I don't Need to get one? No. Yes, get one, please. If you're brand new, you've never been here before, get one. Even if we're in the middle, if it's March, get one, um, so you can continue to take notes and, and read along with us um, with that that passage. And so, I, I guess what I wanted to begin today with is this: I wanted to warn you of something. Um, you're you're coming you're coming at a bad time. You're coming at a bad time because here's the reality. Um, I'm super excited. Why? Well, a few weeks ago, uh, we had this, this family retreat. And so we got to hang out with some of you um, for a few days, just just eating, fellowshipping, praising God, um, learning about each other, playing games with each other, just just having a great time down at camp. And that was amazing. And then the next week, I got to go on a little mini vacation with my family. One of my favorite activities in all of life is to, to be on vacation with my family. I love to do it. It was a short one, but, but we had a great time doing it. Then I got to come to church and I got to hear all about a summer of church camp and decisions being made and the plans and the exciting things happening at church camp, yeah, then I, got, I just got to get fed, and then the next week I get to go and I get to hang out with this amazing staff and dream and think about the God's vision to hear the successes of this last year and the incredible things that God is doing, and now I get to come and I get to be with all of you and share God's words, so I am a little excited, Okay? <laughs> Um, I apologize if you don't share in my excitement. Hopefully, some of it will rub off on you, um, whether you want it or not, right? So that's, that's the kind of thing, because there's one other little thing that I was reminded of on my way to, to church this morning. As we drove down 70, one nice thing about 70 is it's a beautiful stretch between Cloverdale and the Clay County exit. And right now, it's the most beautiful time of year because there's a little fog on, but the sun was burning through, and so the bright light was shining on the colors of all the various trees on the way here, and it was just gorgeous. So if you've got a minute today, put the kids in the car, go for a drive, go through the hills, the valleys, just look around and just be inspired because it's beautiful. I know we all have things to do. Turn the Colts game on your car radio, okay? And just go for a drive and enjoy this creation because it's phenomenal. Because not only all that, but we're entering into what is my favorite time of the year as we come to the holidays and the food and the family and the fellowship and the reason for both of the holidays upcoming. It's an incredible time of year and I get to share it with all of you. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. So so hopefully, uh, that motivates you a little bit. Hopefully, get you a little excited about life, um, because I know life can beat you down, but man, go for a drive today and look around, and if that doesn't perk your spirits up, um, man, we, we need to talk. We need to talk. We're going to begin today in John chapter 3 with one verse to start with, just one verse to start with, and then we'll go into a, a much lengthier section of the passage. The verse says this, when all the people were being baptized, who? All, that's right, all the people were being baptized. Jesus was baptized too. (laughs) Interesting. You see, Luke doesn't record, the details guy, he doesn't record much at all about that event. As a matter of fact, the other gospel writers cover it way better than Luke. Instead, he focuses on what happens after the event, what took place as a result of the baptism But I want to take a moment here, and I want us to help us realize how important this moment is in Scripture, how important this moment is in the ministry of Jesus, and how important this moment is for every single one of us. The first thing is, this is the moment, adults, kids, everyone. When did Jesus start his ministry? Right Right here. Chapter, or chapter 3, verse 21 is when he's, he went into the waters and he was baptized. That is when Jesus officially gets in the game. He's ready. He's suited up and he is ready for battle and we'll talk about that next week as he literally leaves this moment and heads off to battle. Remember, every moment of Jesus' life was perfectly and expertly planned and managed. Why? So that he could protect his mission. His mission was the cross. For you and I. And everything that happened prior to that had to be in just the right order, just the right sequence to fulfill every one of the prophecies and to keep him alive to make it to the cross. He chose this moment to meet with his Father through baptism. He chose this moment to receive the power of the Holy Spirit, indicating that he didn't have it up to that point. Later on, as we talk about why this was the right moment, and we'll do that at the end of today, but right now, I want to address the actual baptism. In the modern church, and you might have visited many churches, the waters behind me have been completely downplayed, almost out of existence. You go to a lot of new church constructs, and you won't even find one in the building. Why? Why isn't this a big deal? Many churches don't even acknowledge it at all. They might have a special Sunday a year or a quarter or something like that where they try to round people up, but they don't make a very big deal of it. So I wanna start with this. Um, Jesus was baptized. I don't know if you knew that or not. Um, Verse 21 says something to that effect. When everyone else, all everyone, was getting baptized, oh, and so was Jesus. So here's the the disclaimer. If any of us, myself included, is better than Jesus, more perfect than Jesus, more sinless than Jesus, then maybe you might have an argument for not being immersed. But I actually will put a real quick stop on that because that's not true because actually Jesus commanded us to be baptized as well. So even if we were more perfect than Jesus, we would still have to do it because he said so. <laughs> Matthew 28:19 famously tells the disciples to go and make disciples and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is commanding his disciples as the first order of priority to go and make disciples and to baptize them into his name. <laughs> Interesting. Peter reemphasizes that on the first day of church, the day of Pentecost, where he preaches the first gospel sermon ever, and of course, that cut to the heart of the people listening on that very day, and they ask, what shall we do? And Peter's reply, just like Jesus, repent and be baptized. Every one of you, who? Every one of you. There's not really much wiggle room in there. But if there's anyone that ever walked the earth, right, that didn't need to be baptized, it would have been. Jesus, forgiveness of sins, gift of the Holy Spirit. What He doesn't need either of those. He is them, perfection, sonified. I mean, just he's absolutely perfect in every way, he never sinned. He didn't need to be baptized, right? Actually, no. <laughs> According to Jesus, he needed to be baptized. It says right there in the text, Matthew chapter 3, verse 15, Jesus said, let it now be so. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness that I should be baptized. John so do it. Get over yourself, John, and do it. There's a whole context to the story, but that's the, the, the pull verse for us for today. So why wouldn't we? Jesus specifically told us to. And if we have not done that, once we learn of the, the truth of baptism in Scripture, if we've not done that, then we're living in disobedience to Jesus, There's also this amazing reality. Did I mention that Jesus was baptized? I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. I think maybe um, I did. Jesus was willingly, he willingly went to John. He willingly went in the water. He willingly submitted himself to John and to the authority of his father as he symbolically gave up his will and submits to the will of his father in, in, in being baptized as he begins his earthly ministry. Now, this isn't the only time that Jesus sets forth that example. He does it in the garden. We'll read it later, Luke twenty-two forty-two. 42. In the garden of Gethsemane, he prays, before his arrest, not my will, but yours be done, fully submitting once again. We get the implications of that statement later on. We'll talk deeply about that statement when we get to that text. But just know, this is a habit that Jesus has. Submitting to the will of his Father should be no different in our lives as we submit to his will and ours. We follow this perfect example of Jesus. We are to do, as followers of Jesus who claim him to be our Lord and Savior, we to do as he commands us to do. But beyond that, we get to do what he commands us to do, what he's offered us to do. And if you're a pre-believer, you're a person searching, you're a person looking for truth, you're wondering, okay, I think maybe this Jesus thing is for me, what's next? Repent and be baptized, every one of you. That's what's next. You want to know something else that's awesome, and I love sharing this, especially with students, but it definitely applies in the adult world as someone discovers Jesus for the first time and learns of this truth and this reality and this thing called baptism that He gives us, that he gives us. You and I, we get to do something exactly like Jesus did. Apart from the River Jordan, though maybe here in a couple years we'll go there too. we get to go, and we get to be immersed. For the forgiveness of our sins, we get to be buried with Christ and raised to live a life anew. It's an incredible thing. When we submit to the waters of baptism, we literally are reliving that same experience as Paul describes it. It is an incredible thing. It's not just for the washing away of dirt. It's so much more. And we get to do it exactly like our Savior. And there is something very, very special about that. Now there's a lot of other things associated with baptism but here's the truth. We know in a room like this there are people brought up in all different kinds of, of denominations and faith traditions and things like that where maybe baptism wasn't emphasized. It wasn't taught honestly as it is in scripture. That's not your fault. You didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> But once your eyes have been open to that reality and your heart and your mind and your spirit is open to that and you too want to submit to that same thing that Jesus himself submitted to, then by golly gosh, have we got a nice one right here. I'm telling you, that water is crystal clear. If you can't see it, we finally found a formula. It's working. It's clear. It's newly resurfaced. It's, and it's 85 degrees. So, you know, it's basically a hot tub. So here's the thing. It's ready for you now. And I, I, you know, it's one of the things that I I remember growing up because as a church, as an independent Christian church growing up, we had an invitation time every Sunday. And every Sunday that water was empty. And I always wondered why. And then I served at a church for 12 years. And every Sunday, except for maybe one or two a year, that water was empty. And I'm like, I know there are people. I know there are people. And if everybody in here is saved and everybody in here has been baptized, then you know what? We don't have all the right people in here, do we? We need to get to work and, and get this water churned a little bit. It's an incredible opportunity we have before us. So, here we go. Let's finish out this part of the text. And as he was praying, it says in verse 22 the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven This is my son. With you, I am well pleased. John's baptism of Jesus the Holy Spirit descends as a dove the very voice of God is heard what would have been like to have been there that day now probably most of us in our mind are thinking well I mean that would have been cool you know that Jesus guy was there and he did this there was no that Jesus guy prior to that moment nobody knew who the man was that got in the water with John nobody he didn't have a ministry yet they're all there to hear John They're all there to be baptized by John. And then this guy gets in the water, and when that happens, then that happened. That didn't happen when I got in the water. (laughs) What's going on? Like This is different. What's happening here? No one in attendance that day would have ever forgot that moment as they watched the sky roll back. (laughs) And God's very vocal voice from heaven, I can't imagine what that sounds like, although we all know it was James Earl Jones, right? So depending on what generation you've been brought up with, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, could be Morgan Freeman as well. That's absolutely true. It's true. They were there to hear John. Instead, they met Jesus. And they heard from God. Can you imagine? That's a pretty good stamp of approval on somebody when God himself speaks audibly from heaven and says, "Oh, yeah, that's my son. He's doing a great job. Keep up the good work." Here we go. Pretty impressive credentials for Jesus as he gets started. And his, ba- his baptism was an affirmation from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So, what do we have now? Well, now, for the first time in all of recorded history of, of the earth, of mankind, of existence, of creation, we have all three parts of the triune God united in Jesus walking this earth. And it's time to go. He's kicking this thing into high gear. So then Luke mysteriously changes the complete tempo, everything's flowing so well, we're getting ready to jump into Jesus' ministry, and he says, but wait, there's one other thing I need to share with you, and I think it's something amazing. Here's the problem, though. Most of us have been conditioned to see lists like we're about to see in chapter three and go, nah, okay, where does the story start again? We might have even possibly been told that genealogies, well, you know what, they're kind of And there's really nothing that I can apply in my life to that long list of names from a long time ago from a bunch of people that I don't know and names that I can't pronounce, right? I agree the names are difficult to pronounce, and since I am not Jewish and I do not speak fluent Hebrew, I will butcher them all. But, but, for the rest of us that think there's no need to spend time looking through a list like this, I pray that God allows me to persuade you in a different way direction. Let me begin by this. This is a very relevant cultural argument. Did you know, I I know this is the last day, but good news, you got plenty of time. You got the rest of this day, so 12 hours or so till the day ends. This is actually October is National Family History Month. Did you know this? Of course not, because there's a family month and a day for everything. So you didn't know this, but October is National Family History Month. So what used to be a really hard project for school, who had to do that? Who had to put together a family tree back in school, back in the day, right? Or it was one of those things that one of your weird relatives did. Sorry if you're the weird relative that puts those together. My apologies. Um, Just just so you know, if you're that weird relative, it's not you anymore. You're not weird because this hobby has now become a multi-billion dollar industry. You can't watch TV without seeing a commercial for ancestries.com. It's not possible. Last year alone, they pulled in over a billion dollars in revenue. DNA testing companies, TV shows that help you trace your family lineage back. Americans seem to be just a little more interested in genealogy today than when it was a forced assignment back in elementary school. This, however, is the genealogy of our Messiah, the family tree of our Savior. There's something special about that. This is his ancestry, this is his lineage. And Luke, true to form, gives us an incredible amount of detail in his list. As a matter of fact, way more detail than his counterpart Matthew that we'll talk about here in a second. He lists 77 names in this line from the Messiah all the way back to Adam. Yes, the Adam and God himself. The last name mentioned in verse 38 is God That makes the list really important if God happens to be the capstone of the list. Because God was, in fact, the father of Adam. The creator, literally, father of Adam. Now, unlike today, though, genealogies aren't just a a hobby like they were back, uh, they are today. They, They were much more important to the Jews than that. For the Jew, ancestry determined a lot of things. It determined land ownership. Literally, in that Jewish culture, there was still an original tribal allocation. There was a track that you could trace all the way back to the land of Palestine, all the way back to the 12 tribes of Israel to find out if indeed that was your land. Ancestry also determined the claims to rights of inheritance, such things like property, yes, but servants, the estate, crops, and beyond, material possessions. The validity of that claim would all rest upon your Genealogy, And if that couldn't be verified, then you're out of the will, so to speak, right? Ancestry was also the basis of taxation. We just relearned that. We were reminded of that at the beginning of Luke, right? Because old Mary and Joe, where did they go? Bethlehem. Why? Because what? Why are you laughing at that? It was okay. Anyway, where did they go? They went back to Bethlehem. Why? Because of their line in the house of David. For taxation, the birthplace of that family, it's where their genealogical records were kept in Bethlehem. Within the Jewish faith, in order to be a priest, a claim to the priesthood had to be proved by genealogy. You had to be a, in the family member, the line of Aaron. Zechariah, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, he and his wife Elizabeth were both from the lineage of Aaron. You could trace their family history all the way back to the time of Moses. To prove that you, in fact, were worthy of being called A priest. And in this case, most importantly, anybody claiming to be royal, to want to be king, to be Messiah, would have been verified. They would have absolutely had to have been proven that they came from the direct lineage of the great king himself, King David. So if you claimed that royal pedigree, you had to prove it by your genealogy. Genealogy played a great role in what was called the theocracy of Israel. There are still some countries that have theocracies. Typically, they are Muslim countries in our world. A theocratic kingdom is a kingdom that's under the rule of God, as described in Scripture, but led by God-ordained priests and kings. And this is a huge part of Jesus' genealogy, especially on the Matthew side. Now, here's the thing. Luke had obviously found access to the genealogical records of Jesus. It was a matter of public record within those towns Matthew chapter 1 is the same way. See, here's some things that we forget sometimes. Yes, absolutely. Scripture was and is inspired by God Himself. But that doesn't mean that Matthew and Luke didn't make a trip down to the local library to open the books and follow the family history and write down the names. They would have been available in a public office, probably the temple, within the community. So it could be verified and it could be accurate. This genealogy of Jesus the credentials of the Messiah are really really important so important that the spirit moved two separate individuals to trace Jesus's lineage back to David's throne and then beyond if he Jesus is to be verified as the king as David's greater son the one who will rule on his throne forever he must have that important Davidic lineage In Jesus' day, here's the problem, there would have been a whole lot of people that had lines back to David. You see, you may, if you know the story of David, you might be aware that he had um, maybe more than a few wives, which means he maybe had had a lot of sons, and that lineage would have extended a lot of different direction. So there were many people who had a claim to the line of David. So that's why this isn't the only credential that matters when being the Messiah. But the absence of this Davidic line would absolutely completely exclude you and discredit you as a potential Messiah. The list that Luke assembles is also very, very, very different than the one listed in Matthew. Uh, Luke takes the, from the moment, and and David, and then back to David, and then back to Abraham, then all the way back to Adam. I I read this in a uh, commentary, and it was just too good not to specifically quote it, so I'm going to do that for you this morning. It says it this way, this line that Luke traces, this is the culmination of all of redemptive history in this person, Jesus. It starts with God through Adam, through Abraham, through David, and right down to Jesus himself. He is not just a good teacher. He's not just a great man. He's not an isolated prophet. He's not an isolated preacher. This is the culmination of all of the history of humanity from God, through from Adam, through Abraham, through David, and now down to Jesus. He is the culmination of all of human history as well as Israel's history. He is the fulfillment of God's redemptive purpose. He is the culmination of all who ever lived. He is the hope of all humanity, and all humanity is inseparably and eternally connected to him. The fate of everyone who ever lives is linked to Jesus. There's no way I could have written that. (laughs) Had to quote it. Claiming to be the Messiah... Claiming to be the king, claiming to be the savior of the world is one thing. Proving it, of course, is quite something else. And remember Luke's stated purpose for his book, to help us be certain, absolutely certain of the things that we have been taught. Luke is very, very good at gathering all this historical proof that Jesus is truly the Messiah. We started this study by looking at the account of John the Baptist and his miraculous birth, this proof that this prophet came and was born in a miraculous way, and then he went on to prepare the way. Even that very prophet ultimately points to Jesus and says, look, here's the one who takes away the sins of the world. It's an incredible moment. Then Luke shares the virgin birth story like any, unlike any of the other gospels. He reveals the angels Gabriel's revelation to Mary that he is to be the Messiah, the king, the son of David who will rule forever and ever. His birth is miraculous in nature. The angels come, they announce the same thing that he is to be. This incredible Savior. It's followed a few days later by Simeon and by Anna, who confirm Jesus' identity. And then, even the voice of God Himself, Luke records as speaking and declaring exactly who Jesus is. Luke wants all of that in there, but then he pauses and he says, And just in case you don't believe the stories that exist, let me throw some paperwork here for you. Let me just show you some details so you can really believe that this guy indeed is the Son of God. He wants people to be really, 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 really convinced of the truth. So he writes down the facts for the last few centuries, actually millennia, (laughs) for people to consider when thinking about Jesus So the testimony of Jesus' lineage is found in two places. I mentioned that moments ago. It's found in Matthew. Matthew starts chapter one, verse one, bam, the lineage of Jesus, the genealogy of Jesus. And that's probably why you skip to chapter two when you read Matthew, a lot of you, right? It's true. There's a reason for that, and in a few years, approximately three, we'll be studying Matthew together, and we'll go through that lineage, and we'll talk about why Matthew did things the way he did it. Matthew begins in the past with Abraham, and he comes forward to Joseph. Luke, however, does it the opposite way. He starts in the moment, and he traces that lineage all the way back to David, and then all the way back to Abraham, and then all the way back to Adam, and ultimately to God, Himself. As I said, we've probably all skipped over that. I want to tell you why maybe you shouldn't. As we read through the list, I want you to consider these people and wonder. Because as you're about to learn, almost every single one of these people you've never heard of and never will again. There's a few throughout history that become important, but the majority of the names are irrelevant. We don't know who they are. We don't know anything about them. Why? Why? Imagine them finding out that later on in their family tree was the Savior, the Messiah. It's an incredible thing to wonder as they lived their lives, not knowing what would become in the future. Ge- Luke's genealogy is different. It takes us on this crazy, weird trip, and as you read it and you wonder, who is that? Where is that going? It's not all predictable. We don't have all of the answers. As I said, a lot of the people, we don't even know who on earth they are. But he wants to show us that the Messiah has this incredible link to all of humanity. Jesus came for everyone, not just kings and queens and priests and the rich. No, no, no. He came for everyone. And this universal approach connects the Messiah to literally all of humanity. So here we go. Verse 23 Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry, and he was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph. Hmm. We'll talk about the 30 years here in a minute, but as we get started, I want to clear up a couple things before we get into the list. First, this Luke just used some very interesting words, (laughs) so it was thought. Why would he do that? Well, see, everyone thought that Jesus was the son of Joseph, and he was not. He was the adopted son of Joseph. He was not the blood relative of Joseph. So what did Luke do? Why did he do that? He did that to make sure everybody was okay with this list, because in order to be okay with this list in that society, you had to start with a man, not a woman. Luke is allowing the cultural norms of his time to dictate that the list begins with the male head of the household. However, the first name on the list is actually a man named Heli, which happens to be Mary's daddy. So, Joseph is his son-in-law. Do you see what he did there? He's sneaking in this other account. Oh, by the way, when Luke wrote this, probably it's a really good, we have a pretty good authority. Matthew was already written. Matthew's list was already done. Luke, I'm going to have to assume Luke read that. He's a details guy. He probably didn't miss that memo. (laughs) So he went a different direction. Joseph is the son-in-law, which leads me to the second point. In all those places in your Bible, especially in these genealogies, and you see that word son, it does not mean what you and I think it means. It does not mean the word son in the English language. No, no, their words have much bigger meaning than our simple words. It can mean son, yes, or son-in-law, or grandson, or great-grandson, or even a remote descendant, a stepson, or even a relationship based on a leave marriage, which was one where you inherited a wife, if you will, because of the passing of a relative. Yes, all of those would fit under the umbrella of the word son. So when you looked at that list, when you read it, and you went, wow, man, son, son, no, not really, okay? Sometimes there's even generations skipped in there with just that word son. That's how you can get just 77 names from the time of Adam to Jesus. Uh, There would be a lot more names if every single son was truly listed. So keep that in mind. That makes this list really interesting when you think about it. One last little thing. Matthew traces Joseph's family just back to David's son Solomon. Luke uses someone different. He uses Mary's lineage and he chases it all the way back to Nathan, which is a son of David and Bathsheba, but it's their third son. It's an incredible line because now Jesus has two lines directly back to the same part of the throne of David. So here you go. The son of Heli, the son of Mathat, the son of Levi, the son of Melchi, the son of Janani, the son of Joseph, the son of Mattathias, the son of Amos, the son of Nahum, the son of Elsi, the son of Nagai, the son of Mathat, the son of Mattathias, the son of Simeon, the son of Josek, the son of Jodah, the son of Johanan, the son of Risa, the son of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the son of Neri, the son of Melchi, the son of Adai, the son of Kosam, the son of Elmadam, the son of Ur, the son of Joshua, the son of Eleazar, the son of Joram, the son of Matthat, the son of Levi, the son of Simeon, the son of Judah, the son of Joseph, the son of Jonam, the son of Eliakim, the son of Meleah, the son of Menah, the son of Matatha, the son of Nathan, the son of David, an incredible list of people. We'll talk specifically about some of those in just a moment. The son of Jesse, the son of Obed, the son of Boaz, a whole bunch of famous names there. The son of Salmon, the son of Nashon, the son of Abinadab, the son of Ram, of Hezron, of Perez, the son of Judah, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah the son of Nahor, the son of Serug, the son of Réu, the son of Peleg, the son of Eber, the son of Shelah, the son of Canaan, the son of Arphaxed, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Kenan, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God." Think about the names that I just read. When, when you read that in your Bible and you just like, I can't pronounce these names, you just kind of skip over it and move on. You, think of the power in the name. This is this is humanity I just read. Amen. If that doesn't impact you somewhere deeply, then they're just words on a page and you're not seeing them for the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that they are. It's an incredible. Incredible thing, and and there's a difference here between Luke's genealogy and and Matthew's. You see, Matthew records all these famous kings and wonderful people in the line of of Jesus, and I'm thankful he did. Jehoshaphat and Josiah and, and Hezekiah were wonderful people. Luke, well, he doesn't. He doesn't do that. As a matter of fact, in the line from from Joseph, if you will, Mary's dad, back to David, if you don't count Nathan, there's two names. There's two names in that list that will show up anywhere else in all of Scripture. That's it. From Heli to Risa. There's two names that were found in, 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 in the actual scriptures. Everything else Luke had to have found in the paperwork. There was no one famous. Matter of fact, they're very common Jewish names, and we don't really know anything specifically about them. The two names we do is Zerubbabel and Shealtiel. That was son and father, and those were two of the leaders of Israel in post-Babylon exile. So they're coming back from Babylon. You'll find those two names as they return, but that's it until you get to Nathan Why? Why? Well, do you remember who Luke's writing to? He's writing to Gentiles. They don't know Jewish history. They don't know Jewish prophecies. They don't care about Jewish kings. Luke is showing and proving that Jesus absolutely came from the line of David, yes, but he came through and for the common, everyday nobody that no one's ever heard of. God sent his son for every one. This list, there's no special privilege represented. There's no special financing. There's no special worldly power, but certainly a right to the throne that he was preparing to fill. That's important, but look at who it's through. It's interesting to note this, that in all of the attacks upon Jesus by the religious leaders during his time, they questioned and attacked every single thing about who he claimed to be except one. Nobody ever said, no, he's not from the line of David. They all knew that. Nowhere in the New Testament was ever there a claim made that Jesus wasn't from the line of David. How incredible is that? Because the reality is this would have been the easiest thing to disprove. Because you could have gone down to the local courthouse and grabbed out the public records and looked through and saw that he wasn't from the line. It would have been the easiest way to discredit Jesus, to prove that he was not an heir of King David. And you know what? I like to think, I bet you, I would be willing to bet you somebody tried. They sent some, you know, intern down down to the courthouse, look at the records and put all the pieces together and find out that Jesus was not from the throne of David. But that little intern found out that, well, actually he is twice. So they probably buried that research pretty deep so nobody else would go and try to figure out that Jesus was indeed from the line of David because he had two great claims to the throne. Now, at the beginning of this lineage, I, I said a minute ago, we'd mention this, Luke throws in something really odd. He mentions that Jesus was 30 years. It's such a strange place to put that. Oh, oh, wait, hey, here's this, baptism, oh, genealogy, oh, he's 30, okay, moving on. Right, to us, it means nothing <laughs> because the age of 30 really means nothing in our culture there is no significance unless you're 29 and you're really really stressed about the big 3-0 other than that there's no life skills no life advantages there's no purpose to age 30 in our culture not the case in Jewish culture especially in Jesus time so why why did Jesus pick the age of 30 remember everything's very intentional Everything is very intentional. That was the age that was recognized when people would acknowledge someone for their position of authority within their culture. Lots of examples throughout the Old Testament. Here are a few. Ezekiel 1.1, Ezekiel the prophet, entered into his prophetic, prophetic ministry at the age of 30. Shocking. Joseph, you might have heard of Joseph in his amazing technicolor dream coat. When he became second in all of authority and power over all of Egypt and really much of the known world, according to Genesis 41, 46, it says that Joseph was 30 years of age. And just in case you didn't know, um, Joseph is very much a messianic preview. He was savior of the world at that moment was he saved them from that great famine. Hmm, David. David ascended to the throne at, in 2 Samuel 5, 4. It says this, that David was 30 years of age when he became king and ruled for 40 years. In Numbers chapter 4, when someone wanted to enter into priestly service, you'll never, ever guess how old they had to be. Wow, you guys are smart. How'd you learn that? I tell you, you must be studying. Anyway, good job, well done. Do you think it's a coincidence that Jesus happened to be 30 when all of this began to kick off? If you do, then again, we probably need to have a conversation, because there's no such thing as coincidence um, anyway, and this was very, very intentional. It seemed to be the standard for a prophet to be 30 when they began prophesying. Guess what? Jesus was a prophet. Uh, a, it said had to be 30 to be a priest. Guess what? Jesus was a priest. To be king, yeah, 30. Now, there's exclusions and changes. It's not a mandate. You had to be 30, but the Davidic example was 30, And oh yeah, that savior thing, that messianic figure in the Old Testament, Joseph, yep, there's Jesus, right in there at 30 to become ultimately savior of the world. He waited until an age where there would be an acceptance of his maturity and people would hopefully listen. Was he capable at 18? Well, he was the son of God, yes. Probably when he was 12, he could have just taken over the temple right then and said, all right, guys, follow me. But it wouldn't have fit the culture. It wouldn't have worked at that time. He waited until that appropriate age when maybe, just maybe, people would actually listen to him. There's one last observation in the text for today, and that's this. In verse 38, Adam, the very first man, is referred to as the son of God. And he was, by creation, the first son of God. When Adam was created, he bore within him the image of God. God says that, let us make man in our image. And that image was unmarred. It was unspoiled. It was unpolluted. It was uncorrupted. It was perfect until he fell into sin. And when Adam sinned, that original image of God was forever shattered. It was broken. And no one who had ever entered the world until Jesus was different every one of adam's descendants had been stained by that sin of adam but jesus came into the world and once again was fully pleasing to god verse 22 confirm that this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased he as man was what adam once was sinless perfect bearing the absolute perfect image of his creator god the true son of god but wait there's more because Jesus wasn't just the son of God, was he? No, no, no. He was fully the son of man through the miraculous virgin birth. And his mother, Mary, what does that mean? Well, that means that being fully man, he was fully tempted. He was fully stressed out sometimes. <laughs> he was fully, fully troubled at times. He says that. My spirit is troubled He was tempted, he was troubled, he suffered. He was persecuted, he was hated, reviled, and ultimately killed. He's the son of Adam, but unlike Adam, Adam descended into disobedience. Jesus descended into obedience. But he's every bit of what Adam was. He's fully man in every sense, but he's also firmly anchored in heaven as the son of God fully anchored to earth, the son of man, God as to his deity, man as to his humanity, the son of God and the son of Adam. And this is important to our faith. He's also the son of Abraham as to his nationality. That is the He is the final promised seed that would come through the line of Abraham. Galatians 3, 16 says, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but to your seed, meaning one person who is the Christ. Jesus is also son of David. As to royalty, the promised king that would usher in all the glory of the divinic promise. Son of God. Son of Adam, son of Abraham, son of David and his deity, and he is humanity. Why is that so cool? (laughs) That's so cool because he's that, and we're us, and he came anyway. (laughs) He, He came for you and for me. In all of our imperfections, in our fallen state, in our sin, in our disobedience, in our anger, in our denial, in our ignorance, he came for us. And Luke reveals that he came to us through a line of fallen man to restore our relationship to the Father in the only way possible. And he had to meet every requirement in order to fulfill all of those things. And that is why this is so important to us. And it should be to our faith. And so that leaves you with what? but leaves you with a couple of things to consider. If you're a believer already, and you recall and you remember the reason Jesus came and who he was and how perfect he was, and yet he came for us in our fallen state, in our sinful state, and we enter into the season of thanksgiving right around the corner, man, today would be a great day as a believer to come before Jesus and bow down before him and just offer thanks thank you for your coming thank you for all that you've done who you were thank you for the tests that you withstood and the life that you gave for me thank you for accepting me forgive me for all the times that i fall short in this walk with you help me to walk closer to you help me to be better connected to you in this life Help me to read your word with new eyes a new mind a new spirit, open to what it has to say. To me, there's so many things as a believer you can come before God and lay down today. And if you're not a believer yet, but you're curious, you're wondering about this Jesus, well, here's the thing, you don't need to know anything. You need to know that he loves you and that he died for you, that's it. And then you come and say, all right, teach me Jesus. Repent of your sins and be baptized like he was. And as I said earlier, there's a possibility we've got people in the room that have been up in the church their whole lives but came from a different denominational background or different upbringing and, and baptism was never even presented to them. It, it wasn't even an option. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. You could have investigated Scripture maybe and began to wonder, but for whatever reason you hadn't done that. And now you have. Man, we would love, love for you to join us in that incredible thing we share with our Savior. What a morning it is to make that decision. Father God, as we close this part of the service and in a moment we consider the end of this part of the story as you offered your life for us and we celebrate that and remember what you did for us, I pray that these words convict us, that the spirit, the power of the spirit that was used to authorize these words, to record these words, that that spirit is still alive and active in this place today. And that that spirit cuts through whatever it is in our lives that's holding us back. Whatever it is in our lives is keeping us from being fully connected, fully devoted to you. Father, I pray that we're willing to lay that down this morning. And Father, if there's anyone ever watching online or listening here today that has not accepted you as the Lord and Savior, then may the words of Luke inspire them to do that. May they begin to convince them that you are their King, that you are their Savior, that you are their Messiah. So many times we say you are, and that's true. You are, but you are mine as well. You're for everyone. Father, we love you. We thank you.